There is not enough time in the week. I'm Glenn Fleischman, a freelance contributor to The Economist, Fast Company, other publications. My co-host is Christina Bonington. Hello, Christina. Hello. I'm a staff writer with Wired. We are co-hosting a show that's going to try to take you through recent events and explain what the heck's going on from a level that you just don't have enough time in the week to figure out. We've got a few issues this week for episode one recorded on February 5th, 2015. What are we going to start with, Christina? Let's see. So the first thing that I have not had enough time in the week to learn about is this whole FCC turning broadband into a Title II regulated business. Oh, I love the FCC. Yeah. So first off, what is the FCC and what does it do? Oh, I think this is great because, you know, there's a lot of federal agencies. You get them bandied around and there's this assumption that I guess that we all know what they are. So the Federal Communications Commission is responsible, the regulatory authority for all communications. And that's wireless, wired, radio stations, TV, whatever. And they've got multiple different interrelated functions, kind of like the FAA, where the FAA is responsible for air safety, but also is kind of uh, responsible for promoting airlines. The FCC is responsible for regulating, uh, like, the technical aspects of how things work, like what radio frequencies can be used and power requirements and licenses. But they also deal with things like competitive issues in, uh, like, the licenses that are granted to TV stations in different territories and uh, and monopoly issues and so forth. So they're technically a regulator of technical stuff, but they also have a big political component as well. Gotcha. And you know, they also regulate, say, like the, the wireless bands that your, your smartphone carrier operates on, right? Yeah, and they conduct auctions. That's one of the big things that's happened uh, since the Clinton administration is they used to just give licenses away typically or for nominal fees. And then uh, and somebody, I don't remember actually which political party or if both of them figured this out, realized there was so much money there that, hey, maybe we should auction them off instead of imposing some taxation or other fees uh, later. So they started doing spectrum auctions for uh, cellular and raising tens of billions of dollars often from uh, you know auctions over years. It filled some budget gaps. That's one of the reasons some budgets in the late 1990s essentially counted money from auctions before it was captured. And it, it changed the industry because companies had to gather all the funds they needed ahead of time. Then they were committed. They paid for the licenses. They had to build out these networks. They couldn't sit on them in order to recoup the, the funds that had been uh, raised through uh, venture capital and investment banks and other, and other sources. Interesting. So right now what's going on is there's been this big battle with broadband and net neutrality for a long time now. So what's going on with that? Well, yeah, it's a long-running battle because a network neutrality is kind of a newer concept because uh, for a long time there were only monopolies, uh, and as was true in most countries, there were only monopolies running uh, the you know communications network like telephone and cable and so forth because of the huge cost of putting wire into the ground. So uh, there's this issue of natural monopolies. You have companies where it only makes sense or, or even public organizations to have uh, one party do it. You don't need 15 companies to, to dig up a road to put wire in, although that's that's changed. That's one of the issues. Mm -hmm. And natural, But natural monopolies have the ability to capture the whole market and charge arbitrary prices. Right. So way, way back at the origin of you know some of these laws in 1932, I think it was, the um, FCC uh, was given powers to regulate monopolies to, to prevent them from acting essentially as monopolies <laughs> would. And that there's a through line from that to today. So even though AT&T was forced to be broken up um, into uh, the baby bells and, and split off its long distance business, and that, that caused a lot of uh, 
competition to happen, there's been this reconsolidation. So AT&T is kind of the biggest, uh, you know, one of the biggest wireless carriers. It also has a giant footprint in wired and uh, wired on the ground uh, uh, broadband. Uh, there's only a few cable companies and Comcast is the largest. So mm-hmm. there's very little competition. But the, the issue that came up was um, without active competition among these companies offering internet service, how could you ensure that they didn't favor either the services that they offer and sell to consumers over others, or that they give priority to companies that pay them extra to sort of push them up and maybe push down other services. And um, the origin of this is in 2002 is kind of the watershed, but even in the late 1990s, there was a split between what was seen as a telecommunications service and an information service. So even though, and this has always galled me, even though the cable companies and the telecoms have gotten the benefit of having monopoly position, like the only, you know, they only, uh, for a long time, there were only one cable company in most cities. They got permission from a franchise board. They were given public rights of way. In exchange, they pay sometimes 5% of their revenue to this local franchise board. It might be a city or a region. In some cases now, it's, it's state. So they're taxed for getting right-of-way benefit. Well, the telecoms also have all these rights of ways and privileges to put wire all over the place. And the and, and they wanted to leverage that to offer information service that wouldn't have any constraints on it. And they managed to get by 2002, in, in the early 2000s, the, the between a series of regulatory court and legal uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, statutory changes and decisions, essentially all of the inf- internet services were put into this other category. And they're regulated under Title I, which is kind of this nebulous and ancillary authority the FCC has. It's very nonspecific. Title II, which ruled the day until really the late 1990s for everything and still does for voice calling, uh, is uh, relates to common carrier laws. That is, a common carrier has rights, um, they're given rights because they're a monopoly or they have rights because they're in a monopoly position. And they get some extra requirements as a result. They can't discriminate among traffic. They're supposed to provide the same service to everyone and so on. And the FCC has a much heavier regulatory foot on Title II. So for a long time, it was seen that there was no way there was the political will to take ISPs and move them from this, you know, sort of loose thing into this tighter regulatory environment where the FCC would be able to enforce principles uh, of network neutrality. And, And now the FCC's taken that move Partly, this is being hoist by your own petard, is Verizon <laughs> sued the FCC over its regulatory authority under Title I and some other aspects. And a court said, yeah, you're right. FCC should probably use Title II. <laughs> and it has certain authority in these limited areas, but this is last year. And uh, and the court really, this appeals court really strongly said, basically, the FCC has these powers. They just have to go to Title II and we're throwing this out. So between that actually, I think, spurred a public movement, mm-hmm. a lot of... Um, Consumer advocacy groups and public policy groups that want to have want to make sure the network the net remains unfettered uh, leapt in, and the Obama administration, Obama himself, leapt in and said this is this should be enshrined. And amazingly, that's apparently what the FCC is going to do. This is excellent. So you know this this ensures that you know no matter what site you visit, you know what what streaming service you use to you know 
you know, if you use Amazon Instant or Netflix, you're going to get good quality internet and it's not going to be throttled because, you know, you're using internet at a certain time of day or you're using a certain website over some other website, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, net neutrality, there's some basic principles, but the fundamental one, I think, there's some more technical aspects, but the fundamental one is that traffic isn't prioritized. Everyone, every kind of service, whether it's run uh, by the internet service provider itself, like Comcast or AT&T or Verizon, or it's run by a third party who has no special arrangement or has a special arrangement, whatever it might be, it's all treated the same way. In practice, one of the most interesting side things is, and I, I wound up writing a bunch about this, is there's the final mile, which is like from the internet, the, the wire that goes from a closet or a, 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 a vault or something, the cable head end near you to your house. Like that final mile has been focused on about what happens there and who has access to it. There's issues about the network, like where companies plug in. But the thing that I don't think is dealt with, and we're starting to hear a lot more about this obscure principle of uh, peering uh, relationships, where you have these giant companies uh, interact with their networks in, in phone rooms and uh, these meet me places and all over the world, and they basically plug one network into another. Well, until now, the FCC has, pre has previously not been seen to have authority there. So it's not exactly throttling if you say, we don't have enough plugs on our port for you to plug Netflix, your network, into us. We only have this many ports and we're not going to make any more available. That wasn't seen as a violation. What the FCC did recently is they said they actually want to inspect these peering relationships and make sure that no companies are paying to play for better network access at that level too. So it's not just in-network where an ISP uses some you know, philosophy or process to throttle traffic, but it's now sort of a level up at network interconnection. And that actually could have a greater impact on, on ensuring um, fairness beyond uh, what the title two rule, two title, that's a hard thing to say, <laughs> title two rules will say 10 times fast. Gotcha. So I think that's the, there we've solved it. So the FCC is doing something unprecedented. But you know, another thing that's unprecedented is uh, driverless cars. Now I live in Seattle, Christina, so I don't get to see these, or at least I haven't, I haven't paid close enough attention. I, I hear other driverless, driverless cars, uh, uh, running all over the Bay Area and, and uh, trying to run you down with the uh, on your bike while the driver, the non-driver, is on <laughs> his or her cell phone. Yeah, so there are there are a handful of driverless cars, um, you know, roaming around the Bay Area. Uh, right now, there are four states that have um, laws that allow driverless cars, and that's Nevada, Florida, California, and Michigan. And a lot of other states are working on legislation that will allow driverless cars, testing of driverless cars in their states. Um, it's a really exciting area, and I think that um, a lot of lawmakers see that that this is this is the future of the way we're going to get around. It's driverless cars. You're a serious cyclist. Do you like driverless cars as a cyclist? Do you think this is going to improve your safety? There, so I, I haven't encountered a driverless car while I've been on my bike, but it certainly can't be any worse than the experience <laughs> of normal drivers. Um, so I, I, I know uh, around the Google campus that they, they do a lot of tests with cyclists and stuff and that one of my editors at Wired actually was on, was on a test ride and they didn't even notice that there was a, there was a, either a pedestrian or a cyclist crossing the road around the corner and the car knew it and waited till that person crossed. Ooh. Um, you know, very politely, um, and then and then proceeded on its way. So um, I'm putting the car in front of the horse, which is I, for, I. So I don't exactly know the definition of. I'll be very blunt. What what is a driverless car? How how is this defined? 
legally it varies from from state to state, but basically what a driverless car is, is it's a vehicle that senses its environment and navigates without human input. It does this in different ways, usually using a mix of uh, cameras and sensors. So it can it can see ahead of it, behind it, to the sides. It can it can tell the distance of, of an obstacle that's in its way. It can tell how fast that obstacle is moving and it reacts very quickly to all of this different stimuli that it's just taking in constantly. Uh, I believe most of the time um, you you have to have a person in the car that's monitoring and making sure that nothing goes wrong. They aren't actually at the helm, but in, in they're in the car, you know, making sure everything is running okay. The reason that, well, this is the reason we're, we're talking about this week is the, the news was that uh, maybe Uber and uh, Google would wind up in competition for driverless cars. And, and people have said Uber's ultimate goal is to not have pesky humans involved in, in driving. But where, where does that stand? Google seems to be much further along. Where are they in terms of uh, like testing and, and building these things out and their plans? Yeah, Google's pretty far along. In California, they have around 25 permits for testing their autonomous vehicles. In California, to drive or to have a, an autonomous vehicle for testing, you have to apply for a permit through the DMV. And so uh, so the DMV is regulating how many driverless cars are on the road. Uh, and a few other companies also have, have permits for driverless cars as well. So once Uber actually has its, its cars in a state that's ready to get them testing, they do need to go through the legal process of making sure they're, they're certified and that, you know, the DMV knows that these guys are being tested on the road. Yeah. And then from there, they can, they can start testing and they're good to go. How much, uh, how much are human beings involved in setting this up? I was reading an article recently that suggested, uh, and I think Google's been a little secretive about parts of this, that, that every curb and corner has to be captured and analyzed before the driverless cars can work. Are they at a point now where they can only drive on specific courses that have been really carefully mapped out or, or are they truly becoming autonomous and can navigate like Greenfield in a new territory? They can drive, they can drive on roads. They can drive on, you know, normal roadways through, through a town. They can drive on highways and they can take in that data at, at such a fast pace that, you know, they can, operate at, at high speeds safely. Probably better than most drivers. Uh, Google's record for, for you know, accidents is just like insanely good. Yeah, I was wondering about that because, I mean, especially as I'm, I'm a, a more uh, dilettante cyclist uh, than you, but I realize every time uh, that I'm biking around town, someone's always on a cell phone, someone's making bad decisions. And it's weird. There may be a nanny state aspect to that. Some people bring up like, should people not be allowed to drive because human beings are really bad at it. So maybe autonomous driving would be, uh, would be better. Um, but you know, I've, I've heard all these different proposals. So where, so where Uber fits in this, I wonder a lot of the, the things I've read about with driverless cars are really specific. Like, uh, you know, a friend of mine who's, who has uh, various disabilities, he's really excited because it could give him the potential to have an amazing amount of flexibility without relying on um, car services and public transportation, special transportation options. And it would give him a freedom he doesn't have. Blind people are seemingly very excited about uh, uh, this kind of option, you know, so there's specific markets or uh, carpooling where you don't have to arrange a car. But, but so those, a lot of those are private ownership. It seems like Uber's plan if, it, if they have a plan, um, it would seem to be an entirely different direction. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Google and Uber, uh, you know, are not looking so much towards private ownership. What w the statement that made Uber kind of 
potentially kind of nervous was that one proposal that Google had for the use of its driverless cars was that it could be used to, you know, to pick people up and drop them off at their destination. You know, they wouldn't need to use a taxi. They wouldn't need to use Uber. They'd have this (laughs) driverless car to take them places. And so I imagine that kind of between that and all of these allegations of Uber drivers, you know, raping or attempting to rape their their clients or, you know, just being unsafe and having um, poor driving records and sneaking into the system. Uh, having a driverless car would be a very good thing for Uber right now and not having to deal with those um, safety issues. Yeah. Also, the carpooling thing is fascinating is uh, I just imagine the optimization of a car, like picking up the four nearest people and driving off. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I mean, I mean, driverless cars could improve traffic on the roadways because they can sense one another and talk to one another, coordinate their speed so you don't get that congestion you don't get that stop and go traffic which would just be amazing i hate stop and go traffic i love i love driving out in the middle of nowhere fast and on twisty roads but you know i could i would love to have a a driverless vehicle just handle my commute for me well you know the the thing that it reminds me of too is you look at those uh those uh lights that are used to uh, meter traffic entering highways, for instance, which I'm sure you have in the Bay Area. We have them up up here everywhere. And they keep adding them because they've found that. So there's enough capacity on the road. There's not a, enough capacity to merge constantly. Mm-hmm. So if they meter out the merging, it actually improves the overall flow. I mean, in, it's all fluid dynamics, right? There's, they've done, you can see these great models of tiny changes in um, car behavior. So it seems like there's a huge amount of potential for a driverless car that would just make the best decisions to fit into the current pattern and dramatically improve uh, of highway flow and road flow. Yeah, de- exactly. And then that reduces road rage because no one will ever get angry in a car again. Yes. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can be more productive because we can be doing other things right. while, while we're in the car instead of just, um, you know, focusing on not having accidents. So how practical is this? I mean, so there's there's practical cars out there. I don't know what the cost will be or how it be deployed. I get the heebie-jeebies a little bit when I think about it, no matter what the um, positive <laughs> aspects are. I'm like, are there really going to be thousands or billions of cars driving on their own? Like, is that, is that what's the failure point for that and so forth? How practical is this to happen in the next, you know, X years? Is this a, a two-year, five-year, ten-year thing? You think it's really going to come about? I think it's definitely at, at the nearest, it's five to 10 years out. Because right now we're just, we have a small number of states that are allowing just testing of these vehicles. Just just saying, okay, it's okay for you to be on the road in, in a specific, uh, you know, scenario where there is like, a person in the vehicle that has a uh, that has a driver's license. It's you know it's hard to tell with the government how fast you know they're going to push legisl- legislation through. So I would estimate maybe five years at the soonest. Which you know for such a dramatic shift in kind of in, in vehicle uh, traffic infrastructure, like that's that's pretty fast for the government to move. But um, like I mentioned before, lawmakers do seem really positive about this for the most part. So yeah, it, it's I'd, I'd say five, five to ten years out at the soonest for this. Well, I would have loved if my grandfather uh, drove probably ten years longer than he should. This would been an option twenty, thirty years ago. It probably would have been a, a good thing all around. Yeah, definitely. So next up, um, we wanted to talk about um, VPNs and the Great Firewall of China. And so, um, Glenn, I believe you are the expert on that. So what is going on there? I've been writing so much about VPNs lately because there's fresh interest. Post-Snowden era, everybody wants to have a virtual private uh, network. And the, the technology is is old. I'm, you know, I, I, don't, I forget the origin of it. I think it's late 90s even that Microsoft made it popular. But, uh, you know, really even 
10 plus years ago as an individual you could get access. And the idea is that a virtual private network is an encrypted tunnel from your mobile, now mobile, or um, you know, laptop or computer, or even your entire network. It's an it's a encrypted tunnel that pops you out somewhere else on the internet. And or even on a local network, for that matter, inside a corporation. And uh, the encryption prevents snooping in a really comprehensive way if, if everything is done correctly. So I'm at a coffee shop. I'm using my laptop. Some services I use, you know, more things are encrypted these days. So Google Mail, uh, I could be using, doing a secure FTP connection for my website. I might be doing, uh, you know, browsing the New York Times using its secure option. I use a tool from uh, the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation called uh, HTTPS Everywhere. It's a Firefox plugin that preferentially finds SSL sites, even for normal stuff. So all that stuff can be encrypted, but you never know exactly what's leaking. And they, <laughs> you know, it's gotten better and better. But even your normal behavior, even retrieving a URL, which is in the clear uh, before the encrypted session starts, that can be a signal. All this metadata that we've heard so much about that the uh, government has been snoo has been sucking up in, in governments around the world. So a VPN hides everything you do. And um, where you pop out, is an interesting point. You could pop out inside a corporate network, which is what it was done traditionally. So it was a way to bypass a corporate firewall. You have somebody on the road, they're trying to do, you know, access the corporate intranet. And great, the VPN both secures them locally, so no one in the coffee shop or hotel or intervening networks can look at anything they're doing, uh, even the metadata of the secure sessions, and they have access to all the corporate resources as if they're there. But for you and me, the advantage is that, uh, that we're not getting a secure connection all the way. We're popping out in a data center someplace is the other end of the tunnel. And to all intents and purposes, to the rest of the world, all of their systems, it looks like we're originating in that data center. And we get all the security and benefit of being in a data center, all the uh, physical protections that data centers have against access. And then you're at a level of the internet where all the routers that intervene and all the interconnections are usually more highly secured than all the endpoints. So even though for me as using a private VPN service, like um, I've used Cloak and TunnelBear, there's a ton out there. Some are free for low levels of service. You're still getting the benefit of the local link being protected and some of the ancillary benefit. Yeah, so that's super useful. And so, and so China is kind of notorious for you know, not really having broad internet freedoms for firewalling and blocking a lot of social media sites. And so they're also putting forth a lot of restrictions on citizens and foreign residents using VPNs. Yeah. And that's been a long running thing, of course, in the, the Great Firewall of China. It's a, what a great, uh, great descriptive name. It's called the Golden Shield Project is the is the more uh, local name. And, oh. uh, you know, it's it's got it dates back to apparently uh, like over a decade, but it's had a, a bunch of different aspects to it over time. The idea is that it's exactly that it's, it's trying to make sure that material isn't readily available inside China that Chinese censors disagree with. And um, one could argue, if I want to be a little bit of a devil's advocate, that every country has some restrictions like this and is fighting with it. David Cameron, uh, the Cameron government in the UK has a lot of ideas about what should be appropriate on the internet, uh, whether locally hosted or remotely accessible. He wants encryption, uh, backdoors put in encryption so that uh, things can be uh, examined. That doesn't sound very democratic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely not. And, and there's a right to forget now where 
in Europe, uh, the European Union, which allows um, individuals to demand things be removed from Google, at least when uh, displayed in European Union nations. So uh, the U.S. has, you know, its own policies when sites are seized or activities it thinks are illegal. So there, you know, we as democracies, people maybe um, need to look more about what our democracies are doing. But China has a much more comprehensive policy. And there's one estimate is that there are two million internet police in China and a population of over one billion. That's a pretty significant subset who are monitoring things like the Weibo's, the um, microblogging services, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, everything that's posted and, you know, local Tumblr sites and all the uh, both local and remote stuff that's going on. And when they find things that are inadvisable, the accounts are deleted, people are arrested, people are charged, uh, restrictions are put in place. Oh, sorry. oh, oh that, that's really scary. Yeah, it's terrifying. I mean, to think about, like, if we had, uh, I think the equivalent would be, you know, like 500,000 people in America. Wait a second, how many people does the National Security Agency employ? Hold on a second. Uh, but, uh, no, there are, in fact, in America are 100,000 people. But but the, there is a you know chilling effect. It's intentional, but it's also this, like, a bit of cultural purity is... The Communist Party, however capitalist the system has become in some aspects, is still in charge, and this is their tool to do it. So the latest wrinkle is that it used to be that there were ways around this, and um, and, and there you could use a VPN because a VPN would pop you out of the country. So you'd plug in, you know, the latest thing on your end, you'd connect the software on your machine, and you'd bypass this firewall entirely, and you'd pop out in America or the UK or or some other country that had different internet freedoms uh. and be able to access information. And that apparently, there have been times when uh, the Chinese authorities have blocked VPNs more because they can figure out the IP address that's being connected to and they can figure out the protocol because the VPN protocol uh, can look very distinctive. Um, there are ways to hide VPNs inside of web sessions of SSL TLS um, encrypted sessions that are just look like normal traffic, but in that case, then they might be able to figure out the IP addresses because there are these fixed endpoints run by services. Uh, so one solution in the past has been VPN services keep adding IP addresses or changing locations, but they can't do that for everybody because then they have to update everybody's uh, uh, VPN configuration to point to the correct spot. So uh, this is starting to become a problem, um, a, a larger scale problem in China. Will there be any way to get around this? It's hard to say. I mean, there's a lot of complaint now. And the, the thing that's happened in China in the last 20 years is there's actually a middle class now. There is a bourgeois in China and they like things like having access to Western uh, media and, um, and especially entertainment. And there are estimates that there might be, uh, I don't know how much credence to give this, but um, Netflix, you know, has a local uh, content licenses in the countries in which they do business. And ostensibly, you're not supposed to access it from outside the country. So it's one of the real reasons for VPN being used widely is uh, people use it to do what's sometimes called transporting. And so uh, when I'd like to watch and use the BBC iPlayer, well, I can't do that in America, but I can pop out in the UK and uh, say, what ho, and um, watch, you know, use the iPlayer. Now, there's, there's issues about uh, legality, enforcement, ethics, and so forth that are that are very uh, that are very useful to discuss. But in terms of a technical practicality, that's what people have been have been doing. So in China, people not only pop out to America or uh, other countries uh, for you know news or whatever, they're Netflix subscribers. <laughs> There's apparently 20 million Netflix subscribers in China, and uh, that's the number that's been put out. I don't know if it's true. And Netflix was reportedly going to be clamping down on VPN usage, sort of in the same way by monitoring IP addresses and so forth. And then they more or less said, nah, we don't think we need to do that because there's legitimate reasons to use it. We don't want to deter legitimate users, but uh -huh. uh, 
there's some amount of users who are outside the country. So there, so that I would say from what I've read, and of course I've never been to China, and this, this is all uh, you know, reading people who are either in the country or are frequent visitors is, you know, there is a demand inside China both for, uh, by academics, there's been a lot of coverage about how Chinese academics say we can't access the papers written by our colleagues elsewhere, we're going to fall behind mm -hmm. or we're not going to be, we're, this is going to hurt us. Foreign companies doing business in China are complaining like mad because they can't even access their home office securely, ostensibly. And then you have this middle class uh, that can afford something like Netflix and arrange to have a credit card with a mailing address in the U.S. and things like that. And they're saying, hey, I can't access Netflix anymore. This is unacceptable. Forget all the freedom of speech issues. I can stream my video. So the workarounds are tricky because I, there's, you know, China can keep, it's whack-a-mole. They can keep uh, trying to block things and, and it sounds like people make it angrier and angrier. And the question is whether Chinese uh, citizens and uh, foreign nationals there have enough power to change the government's opinion on this. And it, that's going to be, that's going to be interesting to figure, figure out. So I believe that the last thing that we wanted to chat about today was, um, I think it's a topic that reoccurs every so often. <laughs> is blogging dead? Andrew Sullivan has been shutting it down um, that maybe newsletters and podcasts are the modern blog equivalent. Um, what are your thoughts, Glenn? Well, I'm a long time, long time blogger, first time podcast. No, <laughs> <Yeah. long> <laughs> but so I ran a blog for a decade that was actually did really well called Wi-Fi Networking News. And it was an early blog and um, I treated it like a news source and, and broke some news and uh, wrote daily on it. I once had some part-time people working for me and, and it built up and then Wi-Fi became sort of boring. Like ev suddenly all the problems were solved and, uh, and traffic uh, dipped off. But the thing that happened in that time is I started writing about Wi-Fi for The Economist and New, Sp New York Times and, and uh, Wired at some point in there and so forth. And uh, it, because Wi-Fi became mainstream, it got covered in different ways. So my blog, uh, you know, was making a decent part of my living at one point, um, about 2004, 2005. And then, uh, you know, I saw, I saw like one wave of blogging go because publications took blogging on. They embraced it. And uh, that bled some of the demand off. I think, and you could tell me this uh, better from being inside a mm -hmm. publication like Wired, too, is it felt like there was a demand for, at one point for maybe like a news cycle that Gizmodo and other publications like that fed. And some of that news cycle feels like it got internalized, like publications, even one like Wired that started as print but had a you know early hot wired online presence, publications seem to shift their online presence over, you know, really over a decade so that it, it's a continuous cycle as opposed to that kind of print plus blog or print plus online. I think that may have had some impact too. Did, did you see that happen? Yeah, yeah. And um, as we've been using computers more and we've had the internet for like two decades now or so, you know, more for some people, you know, our needs and how we want to consume the news and how we want to consume information has changed. And, you know, at first, you know, it was just kind of sporadic. And then I think, especially in the early 2000s, you know, the Engadgets and the Gizmodos, as far as tech news goes, were really, were really popular and started giving you that, that 20, 24-hour day as it happens news that, you know, newspapers and bigger publications just just couldn't feed that that appetite that quickly. And I feel like so many sites kind of started to do that, so many blogs, that people got kind of overwhelmed. And I feel like 
now there there are some people that still want that that as it happens information, but other people are looking for information in chunks. You know, they don't have time to keep checking a website over and over again throughout the day. You know, they've got to get work done. They've got things to do. So they want, you know, kind of more of that information in chunks. And that's where the popularity of of newsletters and podcasts come in because you can sit down, you know, on your commute and and you know, listen and you know, get all this information you know, at the time that's convenient to you and you get caught up on everything that's going on, but it's not just right there um, in your face all the time, distracting you from other things that you need to do during the day. Like Twitter and Facebook now feed that, that, um, that constant stream demand in a way that blogs may have before. And I don't think I could start a blog today in the way that I could have even five years ago, because it would be hard to get enough attention for it. You know, one of the data points too, so Andrew Sullivan um, said he was making, I think about a million dollars a year and he was supporting himself and his staff and an operation. And it wasn't just him for that amount of money because I'd be good living. I think he was just plain exhausted though. The way he writes, he's like, he's been blogging for most of the time that blogging has existed as a concept and he's kind of tired of the cycle. (laughs) He wants to rest a little bit. I think that's fine. It's okay if you're successful. You say, you know, this treadmill, I got to get off it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, like it's overwhelming for sure. Yeah. So I don't, uh, I don't think blogging is, is going anywhere for now. I, you know, I think it's still going to stick around. I think we're just coming up and coming up with new ways to, to share information as well as, you know, kind of more traditional formats. The other data point I mentioned is Ben Thompson, who does a newsletter called Stratechery. He's based in, he's a, a, a from America originally, based in Taiwan. So he has a lot of good access to um, uh, the stuff that he writes mobile analysis about. So he's right near China and Taiwan. It's a great market. Uh, he started this newsletter, I want to say over a year ago now. It's $100 a year. He writes it daily, sometimes produces a little bit of extra. He's got 2,000 people. And he started, people didn't know who he was. He's an analyst and he always wrote smart stuff. But his goal was 500 by April of this year, and he's at 2,000. And um, that is very interesting. And the rise of podcasting, the fact that tens of millions of people now are listening to podcasts regularly, both for you know entertainment and tech news like this, these all seem like signs that people are seeking out exactly what you say, these bite-sized uh, things, things they can consume and then be done, not a constant river. <laughs> yeah. Well, so people can find us, as I say, at timeintheweek.com and on Twitter at timeintheweek. And uh, what's our email address? Our email is notenough at timeintheweek.com. I love when things all come together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you all for listening. And uh, Christina, great to talk to you again. Yes, you too. And we'll be back uh, next week. We're planning to record. We're a little late because of of coughing fits and laryngitis uh, this week on both parts. (laughs) I think we did pretty good. We don't sound like we're about to hawk up along. And uh, we'll be back. We're we're going to attempt to attempt on Wednesdays. Uh, So send us your ideas. Talk to us on on the Twitter machine, on our blog. Uh, We have The Twitters and the emails. Yeah. And let us know the things that happened in the week that you don't have enough time to to sort out. and, And we'll help. Thanks, Christina. Thank you.